Welcome back. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we continue to analyze the fifth principle in the concept of Betochen. And this is an understanding of an ultimate internalization of the nuanced interplay between Hashem's orchestrating and directing everything and the involvement that human beings are supposed to invest. The human factor. How much of a role does the human factor play? Does it detract from the God particle? That is to say, if we view reality as something that's brought into existence by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by the Creator constantly. And as such, it's not only a one-time event. It's not something God did 5,782 years ago. But rather, this is something that God continues to do. And He's orchestrating all of the butterfly effects. Everything that's going on is being constantly ordained by the presence of Hashem, constantly directed by the maestro. So, how does that work with our involvement? Like, we take actions. Are those in our purview? Are we simply cogs in a bigger system? It would seem that we have power, or wherewithal and ability, to choose freely. Well, how does that work with this idea that Hashem is making everything happen? Is God providing for you and I? Or are we providing for ourselves? <laughs> in, the, in the world, they like to say, God helps those who help themselves. And it really can be understood in two ways. The first, you know, you do your part. Yeah, God's helping a little too. But like, you're calling the shots. You will be the master of your own destiny for the most part. I mean, God is still in control. He can still intervene. You know, you got to hope he doesn't get in your way. You help yourself. God will help you along too. <laughs> How did one uh, uh, decidedly non-Hasidic rabbi say? He says, Ruba de Ruba, most of the time, most of the time, God's running the world. Yeah, we, we don't really uh, subscribe to that. We believe God is always running everything. Well, if He's always running everything, how are we to understand the role that we play or, in fact, are called upon to play? 
now to understand this, Rabbeinu Bechaya introduced us to two possibilities of God's provision. God providing for us in a straightforward, direct way. And then God providing for us through a system of many, many causes and effects, the number of which stagger the imagination, the master of which is God, who is the only, so to speak, entity capable of computing and maintaining a precise knowledge of all the moving pieces. Essentially, Rabbeinu Bahaya was telling us, and this is from the previous episode, the wheels keep turning. And just as when you look at this big picture, and he drew us an illustration of a well with water wheels and some horsepower that's getting all these wheels or cogs in motion. He says, just as there is an original cause, say the person who harnesses the horse or the cow to the water wheel so that he can get the mechanism in motion. And then the immediate cause, the bucket that goes into the water that's bringing you hydration, he says that doesn't mean that any of the other cogs or wheels along the way aren't critically important. For if a single one of them was to break down, well, then the system ends right there. And so he wants us to do a, a visualization of this. He wants us to look deeply into this. He wants us to understand it, explain it to ourselves, so that when we look at the world and we see many, many, many dazzling domino causes of effects, it shouldn't serve as a smokescreen. We should be able to see right past it. We should be able to understand and appreciate in a very personal, meaningful, and profound way that Hashem is involved with each and every single detail of our lives. I want to just pick up where we left off yesterday because I think I left a couple of, a couple of details uh, incomplete. If you're following along in the Kihat edition, we're on the top of page 82, the second chapter on page 82, after the quote from the book of Kings, a quote from the book of Jeremiah, Yirmiyo Hanavi, who says, God who is great, and he is the master of all causes. And then we talked about this Pasuk in Malachim that said to us that, and I am not infallible. I made a big mistake yesterday, actually. I, I, I attributed these verses in haste before the class. I was looking at that last Pasuk and I, I, missed, I missed direction. It's not what Yeruvim, the king of the Israelite area, said. It was, it was Rechavim, the son of Shlomo HaMelech's foolish response, where instead of following the advice of his elder counselors, who cautioned him not to break the backs of the people by overtaxing them. Instead, Rechavim bizarrely heeds the rash and really foolish advice of, of his young, hot-headed friends. And the result is the fracturing of the kingdom of Israel. It's a terrible thing. It's almost on a whim. And Yirmiyo Anavi says, you think that 
Rechavim actually made that decision? This ultimately comes from Hashem. Hashem had decreed that the nation of Israel would divide into two separate kingdoms. This is talked about from the very beginning of Jewish peoplehood, when we were just a family. You know, there's that struggle between Yosef and between Yehuda. Only this time Yehuda's in the minority, and Yosef leads the majority of the tribes. But there was always a struggle. And Hashem decreed it that the nation of Israel should be fractured, should devolve into differentiated kingdoms, and ultimately when Mashiach will come, we will be reunited. And, and why did this happen? And why did Hashem allow Yeruvim ben Nevat, who was not a wicked person initially, to rule over Malchus Yisrael? The answer is it was a decree from, from heaven, from God. And it was Rechavim's foolish decision or ill-advised actions that brought this about. Now here's the point. As the Pas Lechem in his commentary says, when we see the quote from the Navi Yirmiyahu that God is the master of all causes, Rav Ho'aliliyah, we could say, okay, God is the master of his causes. But he's not the master of our causes. We're like in a partnership. God does his part, we do our part. So the Paslechem says that's why the Shara Betochen brings home the final verse because he wants to make it exceedingly clear that we don't believe that people actually have their own ability to chart the future in as much as we have the ability to choose when it comes to matters of Yiddishkeit, of serving Hashem. But in the bigger picture, we are ultimately all guided by a higher force. Hashem's calling the shots. As we see with the story of Rechavim, it's really a stunning depiction of this idea. Rechavim makes a decision, a bizarre, ill-advised decision. It results in national consequences whose impact can't be overemphasized. And all of it, ultimately, is Gihoisa Sibo Hashem. And Rabbeinu Bachaya finishes with these words. And you see this in the second paragraph on page 82 in the Kihat version. He says, and if any of these reasons, causes, would be, the word neder usually means missing. I don't know why he translates it as lacking. I find that an odd translation. But, but he says, the neder b'kredish says, the proper way to understand the word neder is not missing, or lacking even, but rather betelot, which is, rendered impotent, nullified, taken out of the equation. So if one cause is removed, the entire system breaks down. <laughs> you have a thousand dominoes. You took one domino out, that's it. The system stops right there. And this is bichlal. What does the word 
Bechlal usually means that this is the case, broadly speaking. I don't know why. They don't even bother translating the word Bechlal here. But we do have a very interesting translation in the Neder Bekeidish, who says that the word Bechlal was added because it means, and I quote, Bechol ha'anyonim hanitzrochim. This is true with regard to every area of human necessity. Any one of our needs, anything that's going on in the world, is being ordained, is being orchestrated by Hashem. As God continues to allow our universe to evolve and move forward, God created the world, as it were. He continues to sustain that original creation, and God is choreographing all of the things that happen, all the moving pieces within the milieu or frame of existence as we know it. So this is Ba'ulam Hazeh, and it is all Achar Yetzira, and all of this is Asherheim Letzirach Ha'odam. God brought all of this into existence for us. This touches upon a key element in our Torah Weltanschauung. How do we see the world? We see the world as directed towards the purposes of humanity towards the human factor because it is we, human beings, who bring meaning and purpose to a universe that otherwise, from a Torah perspective, is absolutely meaningless. It's meaningless because no decisions no choices, no freedoms are afforded to any other arena of existence. And as such, the idea of righteousness, or lack thereof, <laughs> the idea of that which is downright wicked or evil, rebellious against the Creator, is only possible within the purview of humanity. I was talking to a young man this year on Rosh Hashanah. We were walking. I was going to blow chauffeur for some people and he was walking with me. And he said, so, so what does Rosh Hashanah commemorate? I said, broadly speaking, creation, the genesis of our world. He said, so that first verse, Bereshit bara alokim, in the beginning God brought the universe into existence. Is, is, is that what happened on Rosh Hashanah? I said, no. He says, what happened in Rosh Hashanah? I said, in Rosh Hashanah, God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings. And he told them, amongst other things, not to eat from a particular tree. So he says to me, aha. So it celebrates the creation of humanity, really. I said, yeah. So he says, then why do we call it observing the creation of the world. I said to him, simple. Because the world without humanity has no meaning. What's the pro point? What's the purpose? Hashem created a world and he, he gave the human being the intelligence to be able to recognize the Creator despite the obfuscation and the many concealments that God put in place. So the next day he tells me he's at a family dinner. And they're having a conversation about Rosh Hashanah. 
says, the family's very secular. And they don't even know what they're t celebrating. And they said to him, hey, you've been going to shul. What, what does Rosh Hashanah celebrate? So he tells them about our conversation. And he says, his sister-in-law says, that's terrible. Humanity is the ugliest part of creation. We should mourn the creation of humanity, not celebrate it. Humanity is destroying the universe. They're destroying the environment, destroying the atmosphere. Soon there'll be no more humans, and the world will be a peaceful place again. And I said to him, you see, this is the difference between a faith-based perspective and an agnostic or empty, meaningless, nihilistic perspective. We believe that Hashem ordained everything and continues to ordain everything. And so we place our betachin, our trust in Hashem. Those who tragically choose not to embrace the narrative that Hashem gave us in His Torah. Those who choose to subscribe to this notion that we're an accident, a cosmic freak event that ended up resulting in the planet as we know it with all kinds of forms of life teeming within it, that it's actually meaningless. It's actually pointless. And there is no God and there is no purpose. So I said to him, and therein lies what we call in Hebrew the Evan Habaychen. This is exactly where we rise and fall. This is the fault line. So we believe from a Torah perspective, and this is not relevant for Jewish people, this is relevant for every single human being, all of whom are created in God's image. That you must know that God cares about you personally. You matter to God. Your thoughts matter. The things you say matter. How you behave matters. And because you matter, you have the opportunity to bring nachas, to bring joy to the creator of the entire universe. And as I said to a group of provincial police officers that I was sitting with yesterday, I don't believe God created the world. I know it. It's the most logical thing to me that the world isn't an accident. To me, that's totally illogical and statistically impossible. What I believe is that we matter. Our thoughts matter. Our speech matters. Our action matters. Why does any of that matter? That doesn't make sense. That's what we believe. And this is what the Neder Bakadish says. If the Sibis would be Nedaris, if there would be a single cause missing, Bakhlao, it's not just in, in a particular event that has to happen or quote unquote God's intervention. You know, God has to get involved in something. Uh-oh, there's trouble. Break the glass, make the call. God? Yeah. God, we're in trouble. Can you please intervene? Can you please, you know? E.T. is phoning home. No, no, God's for Shalom. God's involved always. And he provides us with the opportunities to be able to experience his direct intervention through many, many causes. If we have open eyes, if we choose to see past the veneer, if we choose to look through the smoke screen, if we choose to put all the little missing moving pieces together and then a stunning picture emerges. Incidentally, this is something that we the Jewish people didn't have enough clarity about until the saving events of a story called Purim. And that's why 
we continue to celebrate and observe the great miracle of Purim. That's why the Megillah is an eternal book, more so than the other books of Scripture, because that idea and ideal is something that will ever be relevant. It's a cardinal principle, a cornerstone in who we are as Jewish people. So everything is a, a siba. It's a cause. If one cause would be missing, then it wouldn't go out from what we would call the activities, natural activities. These natural activities wouldn't result in the final product or being brought into our frame or our field of vision. In order for it to be in Geder HaHavoya, in order for it to be framed by existence as we know existence to be, Hashem brings it into our reality. So this is, this is what we talked about yesterday at great length. And even if you're joining for the first time today, I, I think that these ideas can and really should resonate with any person who's open to faith, any person who wants to make himself a recipient of that which is larger than life, bigger than who we are and in, in our own wants, needs, and desires. Now, before we go further, before we begin to talk about what the annotator of the Shara Betachan in Kahas calls the proof that human intervention is often needed, or as I nicknamed it, the human factor. I think I want to emphasize just one more time the contrast that Rabbeinu Bachaya ordained for us right in the beginning of this fifth, fifth principle. He said there's the things which are direct and the things which are indirect. What is the meaning of direct? We talked about two schools of thought. The Marpel and Nefesh says, when a person suddenly becomes wealthy because they find a buried treasure, you say, wow, that's, that's an act of God. <laughs> they win the lottery. How'd that happen? They, they received an inheritance. It was a f one fell swoop. But, says Rabbeinu Bahaya, when there's a whole series of events, many, many dominoes that fell in order for something to happen, then we say, oh, this happened because of A, or B, or C. But it's much deeper. And there's a huge history and a background that led to this moment. And all of that's catalyzed by God. And the point, the point was this. In the same way that you understand the direct intervention as being a divine act, in the same way, you have to also view the series of events as being catalyzed and ordained by God. When I was a child living in Philadelphia, I remember one morning one of my teachers came in and he said that there had been a, a big storm the night before and he had a new car, he just purchased a new car. And an enormous branch somehow fell off a tree. I don't know if there was a lightning hit. Or the, an enormous branch fell off in the storm. And the branch landed right on the roof of his car. It comes out in the morning, 
the storm is over, and so is his car. <laughs> so he told us that he made a call immediately to the insurance, and the insurance pointed to a clause. This is way before the internet, but they said they had a clause, and they sent in the paperwork that's, that showed that if it's an act of God, the insurance company is not responsible. It's called an act of God. So, had a drunk driver slammed into his car as he was parked in front of his house in the middle of the night, then the insurance would cover. But because a branch broke off a tree, that was called, that was deemed by the insurance company to be a, quote, act of God. Now, a branch just falling off a tree, no human intervention, Obviously, that's, that's an act of God. Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, it's an act of God in the same way that activities that involved many human factors are also an act of God. Only it behooves us to train ourselves to think. In fact, to train ourselves to see, to internalize to the point that it becomes our predisposition what we refer to sometimes in English as a bias. We should have a God-oriented bias. So when something happens, we say, why did God make that happen? When somebody does something because somebody did something, because something happened to someone, because something happened before that, and a whole series of things, and the reality was that it was a direct cause where we were impacted, we should say, wow, Hashem ordained that to happen. And even if it was somebody's bad choice, the Talmud tells us, Al-Hanizak Nigzer, if I was supposed to sustain that injury, if the car was supposed to be bashed up, it was going to get bashed up anyway. So I can't say, you know why my car got bashed up? Because a drunk driver got into his car, because his brother didn't take the keys away, because his mother served the alcohol, because his cousin invited him over to a party that wasn't planned, and a whole series of events. And the truth is that the person who, who elected to drink with the car keys in his pocket did a terrible thing and he has to answer before God and hopefully he didn't hear anything worse than a car. And he's not exonerated. As the Gemara says, Adam mu'ad la'ilam, a person is always held responsible for his or her actions. But in fact, the, the, this reality that came my way that somebody walked out of his house and he found his car smashed, that was ordained by Hashem. So we have to develop this predisposition, this immediate perspective that we shouldn't have to sit, hmm, wonder how that happened. Let me now do my Shara B'tachin meditation and I come out with the conclusion, yes, it must have been the hand of God. Rabbeinu Bachaya said, no, she is Boyeretzli. It becomes second nature. That's the way we view things because it's so clear to us. So this contrast of the direct cause and the indirect cause is really not being disparate. It's actually the same picture, just has many, many, many more steps in the way. But in both, we can and should recognize the unmistakable hand of God. So this idea is actually a very, very old idea. And it's something that's articulated in in different, a different frame of reference, and only to properly, perhaps, you know, augment and, and flavor this fully, I'm, I want to share another detail with you. I want to share with you a teaching of the other famous Rabbeinu Bechaya. 
several generations later, whose name was Rabbeinu Bechaya ben Usher, who lived in North Africa, in contrast with the Rabbeinu Bechaya of Shara Betochen, Ibn Pekuda, who lived in Sargosa in Spain. So Rabbeinu Bechaya II, in his commentary on the Bible, on the Chumash, when it comes to Parshas Beshalach, he has a rather lengthy introduction. Before he begins his commentary verse by verse, he introduces us to the Parsha. A lot of very, very important things happen in Parshat Beshalach, including the Jewish people's flight from Egypt, their fear at Egyptian pursuit, the miracle of the crossing of the Reed Sea, the wailing, quetching, and complaining. We'll hear about the quail. We'll hear about Shabbat. We'll hear about the manna. All these are very important events. A big deal. Each one of them is a really big deal. We have the shira, we have the, 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 the song of praise, which is said to have the deepest secrets of Torah encoded into its exquisitely stitched verses. So there's a lot going on in this parsha. And Rabbeinu Bachaya gives us, I want to read to you the end of his preface. He says this. He says, you need to appreciate that much of what happens in this Parsha, why? why? Why is much of what happens in this Parsha going to be what we're about to say? Because it's the first days of our nationhood. In Parshat Bo, we are born. Our birth is the exodus from Egypt. This is our infancy. This is how we grow as a nation. The first week of our na national life, followed by the first few weeks of our national life. On day seven of our peoplehood, we sing as Yasher. On day six, we quetched and complained. On day seven, we became profoundly, keenly aware of God's presence. In the days that followed, many fateful things occurred, including even an attack by a a nation called Amalek. A lot of things happen. So Rabbeinu Bahaya says, you have to understand that the Jewish people were being tested. Tested by God. We're going to talk about tests in the next episode. It's going to be called the test. This is an important part of everything that, that we're focused on. There is an important class coming up called the test. But now, even as we enter the human factor, it's important for us to understand that God's testing us. Why is He testing us? Because through these tests, we are able to rise to the occasion. We are able to articulate our spiritual courage, our metal. We're able to learn important lessons. And He says, these tests that we went through, in order to, so to speak, test their heart, or emotional equilibrium. And to bring them into a test which also can mean into an experience, a life-altering, a transformative experience. He says, for example, the crossing of the Reed Sea. And here Rabbeinu Bahaya alludes to it briefly. Later on, he explains this in great detail. He says, the sea didn't simply split open. You know, the way you saw it in the movie. 
Nah, that's not what happened. It was just like one long pathway, the way it's depicted in all the illustrations. You know, uh, just a, a path that razors right through, like a ribbon of sand through an opaque blue sea. That's not the case. Ella rather, ma'at, ma'at. Think of it like a zipper. It's opening as the people walk. <laughs> the next step they take is into the sea, and then the sea splits further, and it zippers open for them. And that's the meaning of hayom nosmipneim. The sea flees before them. And what's the point of this? point of this is they're seeing the sea split as they walk. Hashem didn't give them an open area and say, go ahead, walk. He said, keep walking. And at each moment, the miracle extends. Rabbeinu B'chaya says, think about the way the manna fell. Pardon me, It didn't fall with a month's supply. They didn't stock their pantries. They didn't get maybe two months. The Torah is very specific. It doesn't just tell us they were sustained miraculously. It says, Devar Yom Biyomo. Every day, they got their daily bread. Literally. And that was it. Says Rabbeinu Bachaya ben Asher, came. Why did Hashem have to make it that way? Is it difficult for God to give them a month's supply? Imagine if you ran a store, you're a retailer, and you had to go and get new product every single day. It's like, what are you doing? If it's fruits and vegetables, I get it. They're going to go bad. They're going to spoil. I want to get fresh fruits and vegetables. If it's a bakery, I want fresh bread. But do I have to pick up dry goods or things which are manufactured every single day and sell out and then go and pick up? Who runs a business like that? Does your house go empty every day? Do you go shopping? You have nothing left to eat? Not threadbare. Nothing in the house. Empty pantry. Not a crumb left at 10 o'clock at night. And the next morning you start all over again. You know anybody who lives like that? Of course not. It's ridiculous. It's counter to the way we human beings like to function. What do we like to function with? A little bit of room. With a little bit of, so to speak, a little bit of comfort. A buffer zone. Nobody wants to live under pressure. You know, you know, people who, who have to write things always want to be a day ahead of themselves or an hour ahead of themselves. You want to be working till the last second, always down to the wire? It's almost counterintuitive, at least for most people. You know, just-in-time management is not exactly the way most people prefer to run their lives. Why did Hashem do that? Why did He have to, like, keep them hanging always till the last moment? Rabbeinu Bachaya says, Vilama, do you want to know why? He was trying to change their nature. He was trying to get them used to, to nurture them in a direction. A direction? He was trying to teach them 
to develop trust in Hashem. You have what you need for today? Baruch Hashem. What will I eat tomorrow? What are you worried about? No anxiety allowed. You trust in Hashem. He promised to provide for you. He gave for you today. He'll provide for you tomorrow. What are you worried about? Why think about tomorrow when Hashem has already provided for you today? And He will provide tomorrow. That essentially is the definition of man or life. Every day their eyes are raised heavenward. Every day they place their hope and their trust in Hashem. In other words, if we can expand from the words Rabbeinu Bahai is saying, he's saying that by analyzing the manna and learning its lesson, we can go through our lives today. Well, fascinatingly, the Rebbe actually says precisely that with regard to the manna. So here's something really interesting. I guess this would be what you call a a point of discussion. When we hear about the soon-to-be-arriving mon, the manna, the Torah says, chapter 16, verse 4, Hinini mamtir lochem, I am going to rain down upon you lechem in bread from heaven. So what happened there? The, the people complained. In verse 3, they said, what, are we going to die or something? <laughs> we should have died back in Egypt. Why did God have to drag us out to the desert to kill us? And it's, uh, it's not looking good. So God says to Moses, tell them, I'm going to rain bread down from heaven. And they'll go out and collect the bread. So why does it say the term mamtir? Mamtir comes from the Hebrew word matar. Matar is a noun, it means rain. Mamtir is I will rain it down, like, in, like a verb. So the Ibn Ezra says, it speaks about mamtir, it speaks about rain down, because it actually looked like rain, it felt like rain. But what difference does that make? So the Ramban, Nachmanides, had something very interesting. He says, you know, the target that you aim for is called a matara. It's even like that in, in modern Hebrew. On the shooting range, there's a matara. There's an objective, a target. And the Ramban says that each and every grain of manna fell exactly where it was supposed to fall, for exactly whom it was supposed to fall. So to speak, every granule had its address. And Hashem arranges it that each person got the manna that was uniquely addressed to them. Okay, it's interesting. Some of the other Rishonim speak about this idea of Mamtir, for example, Rabbeinu Yosef Yaivitz, he says, you know, this is not exactly like a, a rainy day. It hasn't rained manna in the, about 3,000 years now. <laughs> it's not a natural phenomenon. Like, why make it sound natural? It should have said, Hinini Bora, I'm going to create, because this was a divine creation. It should have said, Hinini Notain, like a gift. This is God's gift. This wasn't a natural occurrence or event. 
Yosef Yavit says something very interesting. He says, because the Mishnah tells us that the manna was actually created in the last moments of the six days of creation. The Mishnah says it's one of the things that was created in the proverbial twilight zone. And because it was already extant, God isn't creating the manna, but the manna that's already been created, meaning something which is physical, it's part of the material world, it landed on the ground. People ate it and were nourished by it, and at the same time it was totally atypical or beyond the orbit of nuclear physics. This was not normal. For example, we know that the manna, unlike normal or typical food, didn't have to be digested. It simply melted into their bodies. Usually, or I should say always, when we eat food, even if it's very healthy food, most of it is garbage. The, the vast amount of volume of the food that goes in ends up going out. And might I add, in a much worse form, we do a pretty bad job to that food. And when the garbage goes out of your body, then you can be healthy. If the garbage stays in your body, if the volume of food you would eat would stay, you'd be in very big trouble. The nutrients are extracted from it. If you need a graphic example, before the space shuttle as we know it or knew it, the first rocket ship that went off more than five decades or six decades ago was a tiny capsule. You can see the capsule in the Smithsonian that landed back in the Indian Ocean. It's tiny. But what's with that enormous rocket? I remember as a child seeing this little capsule. I'm going, that doesn't, doesn't fit with the pictures I saw of the, the launches at Cape Canaveral. That's all fuselage. That was all just to get the capsule to break the atmosphere. Once it broke the atmosphere, the fuselage falls away, lands in the ocean, and it's no longer of any use. The space shuttle came home like, you know, this shining gleaming when it got back, like kind of similar to the way it left, although it also dropped its fuselage. Thousands and thousands of gallons of fuel. An enormous amount of combustion to break the atmosphere. But the point is this. The point is that you need something to deliver the payload. You don't need to carry the fuselage around. The fuselage just needs to get you into outer space, into orbit. You don't need the mass of food. You need the nutrients. But in the way Hashem created our bodies, we have to work at extracting the nutrients. And that's what your digestive system quite miraculously does for you. And then it pushes out the garbage. But it wasn't like that with the manna. <laughs> the manna you ate, and they never went to the washroom because it was lechem and hashemayim. It was perfect sustenance. It didn't require human engineering. Just like Torah, by the way, doesn't require human engineering. It doesn't have to be made moral or right by a woke culture that sits in arrogant judgment over God's word, deciding if it should be accepted or rejected, if it fits into our mores or what we believe to be right, proper, and correct. That's called idolatry, by the way, creating God in your own image instead of bowing your head in submission and trying to understand what did Hashem say when He created us in His image. It's a little infomercial for my pet peeve. Okay, back to the point. The point is that the manna was a very, very different kind of food. And because it was so different, it wasn't part of this world, really. Our world is a mixture. Everything in our world is a mixture of good and bad. 
the healthiest food is filled with toxins. In fact, food will kill you. But if you have no food, you die faster. So what happens is that if it's part of our world, it needs refinement. Nothing is perfect in this world. Everything has to be engineered by people, the human factor. Manna was a godly thing. It was perfect. It melted straight into people's bodies. So that's why, says Abir Safiyev, it says mamter. It's raining down that which already exists before. The Tzred Hamar, much like the Ibn Ezra says, no, no, it actually fell the rain. It came in a form of rain. But the Rebbe asks a stunning question. The Rebbe's question is that we have a famous Gemara in Masechet Tanit, which is found on page 3. And the Gemara says that there is a world of difference between rain and dew. D-E-W. You read this Hageshem, rainfall has everything to do with Maseh Odom. It is God's reciprocity to us. We earn the rain we get. And that's why rain can stop. We see this in our Shema, the basic documentation of our faith in Hashem, where we say twice daily, V'chora af Hashem b'chem, God's anger will flare against us, heaven forfend, and the result will be, V'otzer es Hashemayim, the heavens will be restrained, V'lo yihiyamotor, there won't be any rain. But the verses that proceed speak about rebellious behavior, turning our backs to God. Do, however, does not require any do on behalf of the people. In the language that the Gemara uses, tal loimiyatzar. There's always do in the morning. Even during a time when there's famine, economic collapse, no rain, the atmosphere always gets moist. There's always do. Because the descent of mist in the morning or dew is something that is always do. Unintended. D-U-E. Do is do. Always. And it doesn't matter if we deserve it, earn it, or do anything to bring forth the do in reciprocal fashion. So, in the teachings of Hasidus, in the Alter Rebbe's Memorium, and in the and in many, many of the Memorium of the Rabbeim, we have this discussion about the difference between manna and between the bread we eat, lechem in Hashemayim and lechem in Aretz. So, very interestingly, we're told that there would be a layer of dew, the manna, and then another layer of dew. Kind of like, you know, Ziploc, sealed for freshness. And then the people would collect the manna, and whatever was missing would evaporate because it was weightless. So as the dew would evaporate, the rest of the manna would evaporate also, and there was no manna until the next day. So in Hasidus it says, this is because lechem in Hashemayim was not something that hinged on the behavior of people. Why not? Why not? Because Hashem gave it for free. It's like you feed your children, even if they don't deserve it. <laughs> you don't withhold food from a baby. We were a baby, an obnoxious baby. Oh, did we make trouble? But Hashem always fed us. Rain, however, is different. And that's the difference, it says, between lechem min 
bread that comes from heaven and bread that comes min ha'aretz, the bread we eat today. So the Rebbe says, in view of this, the question isn't simply, as the Rishonim put it, why emphasize rain? In view of this way of seeing things, the idea of mamter lechem in Hashemayim is oxymoronic. It's the exact opposite of what the do is supposed to be. Oh, pardon me, the, the man is supposed to be. Manna is identified with dew, not with rain. Pointedly not with rain. So what if it looked like rain? It should have said that it comes down like dew. Beredes hamon. It should say the descending of the mon. Why emphasize the idea of rain? The fact that it was already created before, it still could have said beredet. The fact that it came down with a specific goal in mind, beredet, still fits perfectly. So why did the Torah pointedly use the term mamter? And the Rebbe says an absolutely amazing thing. Pluralistically speaking, from a general perspective, the manna is identified with dew-like divine beneficence. God gives us like dew. But at the same time, it has to have a rain-like quality. Why? Because if it had been an automatic download, which meant that as long as the people were there, God would sustain them. He simply could have made the manna or made sustenance into their bodies. He could have made them like Moses. He didn't have to eat. He could have powered them automatically. They could have been like on the Wi-Fi system and downloaded nourishment. Could have done it wirelessly. But it didn't happen that way. Instead, it's true that God didn't require farming in the desert. It's true that the people didn't have to make enormous efforts to bring forth their sustenance in the way that they did subsequently in the land of Israel. But at the same time, there was human effort, a human factor. Namely, you had to go and collect. And the collection was something that had some kind of toil or effort attached to it. Not only was it something that people had to work at, depending on who you were, your standing in life, or how righteous or devoted you were to Hashem, that would make a difference in how much work you had to invest. In fact, we're told, according to the Gemara Mesechet Yoma on page 75, that for tzaddikim, it came as ready-made food. For Bainanim, it came as uh, ready to make loaves. They could just bake it. For the wicked, they actually had to make flour out of it and knead and shape and then bake. For tzaddikim, it says, the bread landed in the bread basket at the door. They simply came out of the tents and the manna was there for them. For the Bainanim, they had to go out and collect. For the wicked, they had to go on a journey until they found the manna destined for them. So we see that there was, with all of the dew being free, and for all that their behavior wasn't indicative to the manna falling, their behavior did make a difference as to how they received the manna. Why is this all? And the Rebbe says, because 
Hashem is trying to convey a message to the Jewish people. He's trying to instill within them the perspective of faith and trust in Hashem. Similar to what Rabbeinu Bechaya had pioneered centuries before. Hashem is telling us that when He gives us bread in a natural fashion, it's still Him giving us the bread. As the Rebbe Maharash once said, that in today's day and age, making a living is still like the manna. And you know, our grace after meals was formulated by Moshe Rabbeinu when the manna fell. But that's not the food we eat today, but it serves as the forerunner. Because ultimately, manna is the paradigm through which we are supposed to see the way Hashem sustains us. So they had to work to get the manna. So there was a rain-like element of it. And the point that I want to leave you with is just as we saw the manna as an act of God, so too we must see whatever happens in the course of our day as we're making a living is also the hand of Hashem. This provides us with the perfect platform now to be able to read what Rabbeinu B'chai is about to share and understand it, I think, in a very, very, very solid profound and foundational way. Says the Shara B'tochem. So when we look at the, the basic needs of a human being, Tzorich is like a need, a necessity, the necessity for a human being to be sustained. We don't get automatic downloads. We have to work at receiving the sustenance we need to continue to function. So we see that we need to do things. Things don't just happen by themselves. We need to work at things. We need to make things happen. If we don't make them happen, <laughs> then they won't happen. And we won't be sustained. So when we say, when we talk about this idea of this very interesting, seemingly redundant terminology, lesabev, the word lesabev comes from the word siba, which means a cause. Lehizgalgel means to kind of roll into, or to turn into. So the Paslechem says that when we speak about this terminology, you have to appreciate that the difference between the two terms is, is that the siba is a cause that leads along the path. The Gilgal is what rolls into the hole. You know, like when you're mini-golfing. You hit the ball a little closer, a little further. Three, four, five. Oh, you're not doing too well if you're a five. And you finally get the ball into that little hole. So he says, they're all Sibas. They're all like, you know, stroke one, stroke two, stroke three. And then there's the, his Gaugal, when the ball rolls into the hole. He says, people, in order to sustain themselves, have to be involved in a whole series of causes and turns. Ligmen and Yonav, in order to get to your objective. And he says something so important here. You can see this. You can see this. There's <laughs> a point of... Um, Contention with translation, which, as you know already from 
studying together with me drives me crazy. I, I cannot understand for my life why he wouldn't translate the word nistakil as to see. So earlier on page 79, when we said sheyiz boyer, which means should be under, should be clarified to him, understood, explained to him. You know, when you really understand something well, he translates that as you should see it clearly. <laughs> now when it says, lihistakil, which means to look and see, now he translates that all of a sudden as to contemplate. I don't know. All right, I think you've got to be loyal and, 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 and committed to understanding the actual Hebrew words and that's the way to be able to, to fully understand this properly. So, we have to look at this, and, and he emphasizes, and you can see it in your mind's eye, perhaps, but you can see this. It's so easy to illustrate this. It's so easy to see it. So the people got the manna, right? Did God implant the manna in their stomachs? No! Even when God would put food in front of you, should the food be placed in front of you appropriately, it still won't sustain you. If you don't actually put it in your mouth. <laughs> As they say, you could bring a horse to the water. You can't make him drink. So when Hashem arranges for the horse to be at the water, does it mean that the horse found himself a drink? It doesn't mean that the horse drank from what Hashem arranged for him. If we would sit down and food would miraculously materialize on our plates, we would say, wow, it's an act of God. This is not our doing. Yeah, Rabbi Chai says, one second. In fact, it is your doing. There's the human factor. The human factor is you pick up the food and choose to put it into your body. And then you chew the food and digest it. So, because you put the food in your mouth, chewed it with your teeth, and then swallowed it with your, with your esophagus, does that make it less an act of God? Nobody would say that. Ah, he reasons. So, when you lift it up to your mouth, and you're chewing it, unless you do those things, you wouldn't break your hunger. The only way to break hunger, the only way to satiate yourself, is to actually eat it. And even when it comes to a drink, he says, you don't have to digest the drink, you don't have to chew the drink, but you still have to put it to your lips. So in that case, there's always a human factor. Would anybody say that the manna from heaven was the result of people choosing to eat? Would anybody say that that wasn't a miracle? Or as the commentaries that we, 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 we focused on earlier, I, I shared with you now the Marpil Nefesh, that the Siba, that the direct result is the, the lottery, the, 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 the sudden will or the, or, the, or the windfall that comes a, a person's way. And then the Neder Barkadish puts it differently. He says, you know, the fruits that grow naturally, things that grow without any intervention, without anybody planting it. So a person says, how did you eat? How did you eat? I don't know. It's a, a tree grew out of nowhere. It's an act of God. And how about when you had to plant it? Well, well it's not an act of God. I, I planted my own garden. It's my farm. 
I toiled on this. I worked really hard on it. How foolish could we be? Who arranged everything to be in its rightful place and employed us, orchestrating our intervention? As we learned in a previous episode, unless it's directly linked to Torah and mitzvahs, unless it's directly linked to respect, to reverence, to fear, to awe of God, hakol everything's in the hands of heaven. Even Rechavim's foolish, bizarre decision is in the hands of heaven. So we need to train ourselves to see this. And to some degree it's counterintuitive. But if we work at it, we can change the way we view things. And you see things differently. This is not unlike the various arenas of, shall we call it, vocational professions. I was once with a person who was an expert in security. And he started to point things out to me. We were, we were in Brazil and it was a conference of shluchim and I, I was brought there to speak and he was brought there to speak about security. And, and, and he starts pointing out things to me. And I didn't notice any of those things. And he said, this is a deficiency. That should be done differently. He didn't create the reality. He made me aware of the reality. It's a world of difference. We can make ourselves aware of this reality or we can choose to be oblivious. And just because it isn't in our natural line of vision doesn't mean we weren't destined to see it. A person who's involved in health and wellness will see things. The doctor will diagnose almost subconsciously. He'll notice things. Does that make it unnatural? <laughs> Would anybody say, don't do that. You have to just go with the flow. Whatever's intuitive. However, however you feel about it. Just go with the way you feel. Suddenly when it comes to spirituality, that's an acceptable path. No other profession or vocation says, go with the feel. They say, harness your wherewithal, your ability, your talent. Train yourself. Get better at it. Work at it. Practice it. My dear friends, Yiddishkeit, spirituality, connection to Hashem is no different. Just like a person who has a natural knack or talent or ability that has to be fine-tuned and developed, so too we have a profound ability to see the presence of Hashem in our lives. We have an ability to connect to God in a very meaningful way, but we have to work at it. I've shared this idea with you before. The Alter Rebbe says that the word emuna, which means faith, is etymologically related to the word omen, a professional. How do you come, become a professional? Practice makes perfect. In the language of the Mishnah, a person who trains, trains his or her hands. The potter knows how to manipulate the clay. He wasn't born doing that. The musician knows how to play the instrument. He may have a natural predisposition to music. You still have to learn how to manipulate the particular instrument. You have to learn how to make music with it. People are born with artistic talent. But in order to develop that artistic talent, they have to practice. They have to work at it. 
we all have the ability to see the presence of Hashem for despite the smokescreen, the obfuscation, the veil and concealment that Hashem has ordained and arranged. He has enabled us to pierce that veil. He has given us the power, the koyach, the ability and strength to see past the concealment. We can see the presence of Hashem. But that's something we have to choose to do. We all can live a life of utter bliss and tranquility, trusting in Hashem. It's in us. But we have to choose to bring it forth. That's what we're talking about here. Rabbeinu Bechaya is showing us how it's not that hard to see the hand of Hashem. We tend not to see the hand of Hashem. We say, no, 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 this is the human factor. That's not God, that's people's choice. Rabbeinu Bechaya shows us how silly that is because even if the food were to land in front of us, we'd still need to have a human intervention. There's always the human factor. That's the way God made it. It doesn't mean that our activity is outside of the orbit or sphere of God's influence. It doesn't mean that we don't play a role being a cog in God's system where the wheels keep turning. And so Rabbeinu Baha'i continues and he said, the coal chicane, how much more so? If for whatever reason, God will choose to restrain the person's sustenance from him. Until a person has to, and here the word Gilgal says the Neder Bakredish means It's not like the ball just rolling into that little hole. Here you have to actually roll after it. Uh, they say roll with the punches. You have, to, you have to follow it. You have to move. You have to pursue it like a wheel, like a ball that rolls. You can roll, but you have to move it along. And he says, she is So if we have, if God provides us with wheat, barley, a harvest, there's efforts that have to be made. This trina, there's the grinding of that food. It's not natural. You don't just simply eat it. You're not going to be able to lift or break your hunger by chewing the, the, the harvest. You're going to have to work at it. And how do you work at it? Well, there's the trina, there's the grinding, there's the lisha. After you finish grinding or making flour, you have to knead the flour. And then after you have dough, that's nice, you still can't eat. You have to go ahead, va'afiyah. You have to go ahead and bake it. And all of the other things which are required to make us food we can actually eat. And then even more effort, even a bigger toil that has to be exerted or has to be expended. If you have to not simply take the produce, the harvest, and start milling the grain, but if you actually have to go and buy the grain, oh, that's a whole trip. I've got to go to the store. I've got to go pick it up. And even more so, if a person, he said, I don't have the money. I need the money. So before, when the food fell on his plate, he said, wow, it's an act of God. It's an act of God. Oh, no human factor here. I didn't do this. God did this. How did it end up breaking your hunger? Well, I, I lifted the food off the plate. I did chew and digest the food. Oh, so that human factor doesn't bar 
the obvious beneficence that comes from God. And when you had to grind the food first, you woke up one morning and there's a harvest on your doorstep. So you took the harvest and you ground it. You took the flour, you kneaded it. You took the, the dough and you baked it. And then you ate it. That's a lot of work. Would somebody say, oh, this was all my doing? Well, I mean, the harvest happened to land in the front door. That was an accident. But the rest is all my doing. A person would say, of course, that's a gift from Hashem. So at what point does it suddenly not become a gift from Hashem? And at what point do we think, I have done this? This is not God. This is my acumen. This is my business ability. This is my knack. My, my smell, my sniff. I know when to go for the hunt. I made this money. It's not about God. How foolish is Rabbeinu B'chaya? Is it because it got a little more difficult? Is it because it required a little more exertion? You had to expend more effort that suddenly you took God out of the equation? In other words, the fact that there is always a human factor does not in any way, shape, or form take the divine intervention or Hashem's sphere of influence out of our orbit. You just have to train yourself to see it that way. You have to get used to thinking that way. And so if a person doesn't have the money to go and purchase the food, now he's going to go out to the dog-eat-dog-work world. Oy vey, there's such a challenge and such difficulty. It's so hard, like pushing water uphill to make a living. This is a much greater effort, than that which we mentioned earlier. And it's all just so you should make a profit. <laughs> then you can't eat the money. Then you have to take the money and go buy the food. Or, in a worse situation, a person might even have to sell things of value in order to eat. What's he alluding to here? Ah. What's he alluding to here? When he speaks about says the the Neda you might have to sell things of great value. You know, in a famine, you can't eat gold and silver. Your mom blanc pen and your Rolex watch doesn't break your hunger. These things become valueless in a time of, God forbid, war and famine. People will sell valuable things. Of chafetzim or kinyonim, objects, or things that one owns, assets. The Paslechem says, kinyonim, things that you are considered assets, are things like real estate, homes. He says farms. Speaking in the language of the world that was, he says farm animals. Speaking in our language today, motor vehicles, tractors. Chafetzim, objects are like, you know, your mom blanc. Your watch, your clothing, your jewelry. Stuff. Valuable stuff. But you have to sell that all because I don't have any food. So he says just because there was a cause that led to a cause that led to a cause that led to a cause that in the end finally brought sustenance to me so that I can break my hunger. So it's no longer something which comes from Hashem. The point (laughs) the point is that in all cases in order for a person to still his or her hunger you have to invest effort sometimes more sometimes less 
in order to attain the objective of survival, in order to nourish ourselves, in order to sustain ourselves, we are always going to have to do things. Take action. Invest effort. Okay. These steps are all causes. Each one of them is bringing about, in effect, the ultimate objective of keeping body and soul together, filling your belly. And so we have to view this all as different cogs in God's system where the wheels keep moving. Everything keeps turning. So sometimes Hashem requires a person to make greater efforts or take more steps. And sometimes Hashem brings it to the person and gives him his preordained income in an easier, simple way. But it's always from Hashem. And this ideal, this concept, has to be internalized. It has to be something that we think about to the point that we can see it with our eye, that we fully grasp and understand it so that it becomes our second nature. And then we can be primed and ready to embrace betachen. Then we can build our trust in Hashem and actually achieve that life of certainty and inner tranquility. Of course, you may ask the question, why? Why didn't God make it easier? Why did God make it so challenging for people to be able to have even their basic needs met? It's a good question. In fact, it's the very next thing Rebbeinu Bahai is going to be addressing. Thank you for joining today. May our faith and our trust be strengthened. May we continue to nurture and develop this innate ability to see the hand of Hashem in every step we take. To appreciate the ever-present involvement of the Creator of heaven and earth. And may we learn to do our part and leave it in Hashem's hands. If you found this inspirational or uplifting, please take a moment to like, share. And if you haven't yet, I'd appreciate it if you could please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. May we continue to study Hashem's Torah, to enhance and uplift our level of God consciousness. May we together merit the Mirz Hashem to soon enter into the time in which the presence of Hashem will be available for us all to see. In the most obvious way with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira will be Amenu Amen. Thank you so much for joining today. I look forward to seeing you back.